0: Hello and welcome to season one of the StoryFest podcast. StoryFest is a biennial celebration of the art of storytelling held right here on Murramurang country in the Milton Mollymook Ulladulla region on the beautiful New South Wales South Coast. The episode you are about to listen to was recorded in June at StoryFest 2019. You can learn more about StoryFest at our website, storyfest.org.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. Every month features some terrific book recommendations, author interviews and giveaways. As a bonus, subscribers get first dibs on special offers and early bird access to tickets for all of our events. We'd love to see you at future festivals. Before we begin, We'd like to thank the Ulladulla High School Didgeridoo Group for providing the wonderful musical intro to this podcast. Now grab a cuppa or put on your walking shoes and enjoy this episode from Storyfest 2019.
1: Good evening everyone and welcome to Storyfest. Lovely to see you all here. Lovely to see you all having a nice relaxing time. In case you haven't seen me before, although I have to say I've never been on the Milton stage before, so here we go. I'll just tap dance for you. My name is Meredith Jaffe. It is my immense privilege and pleasure to be the inaugural festival director for StoryFest. An event we plan will be on your calendars for many years to come. Before I begin, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet tonight, the Muramurang people of the UN Nation. I'm honoured to be on their ancestral lands. I acknowledge and pay respect to their elders of the community, past, present and future, and extend my recognition to their descendants who may be here tonight. I also wanted to add... That it's particularly pertinent to acknowledge that the Murrumurang people have a culture that is not only tens of thousands of years old, but they continue to tell their stories through age-old ceremonies, music, dance and celebration. Storyfest is an idea that has been percolating for quite some time. It was only a matter of time, really, that this passion for books that we all shared um, would extend into some kind of festival. But the more we talked about it, the more we said, well, we didn't really just want to have another literary festival. We wanted to embrace everything that we loved about storytelling. Because the unique thing about this area is we have so many incredibly vibrant, boundary-pushing, challenge-embracing artists of all varieties and we wanted to make sure that our festival celebrated everyone's talents and not just the writers. So rather than add another literary literary festival to the calendar, we were very clear from the get-go that this would be a festival that would celebrate storytelling in all its forms. Telling stories... ...be it through prose, poetry or song, connects us with one another. It helps us understand our past and it helps us contemplate our future. Storytelling is the way we we attempt to understand the world around us and our place in it. Tonight is our first major fundraiser for the 2019 festival. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Suzanne Leon. She and I have been crossing paths at literary festivals for a very long time. We've both been facilitators for a very long time and we're both authors as well. Suzanne Lill is Brisbane-born but Wollongong-raised. Thanks to her father's career, she's also spent time in France and Germany and she speaks both of those languages. Very early on, she realised that she wasn't particularly mathematical, kind of sporty... Um, and she was never really going to cut it uh, in any other world. Except the world that dealt dealt with words. Originally, that meant that she started life as a criminal lawyer. But she's also worked in pra- She's also practiced in areas of child protection, refugee law, and uh, criminal law. But eventually, she has graduated to her first passion, which is storytelling. She's a regular interviewer at the Sydney Writers' Festival and uh, also has the rather onerous job and uh, important job as she's senior judge for the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award and has been for some years... Her curiosity about hidden stories and secret lives sparked her interest in the lives of her Czech landlords, Fred and Eva Perga, and inspired her first novel, Border Street, which was commended for the Asher Literary Award. And more recently, curiosity prompted Suzanne to explore the intrigues of a small coastal community in her second novel, The Teacher's Secret. Please join me in welcoming Suzanne Leo. Okay, it's the man himself. I said to Marcus I was going to try and keep it short and i just take it off his publisher's website but then it's really not as short as I was hoping it was going to be. But you know what? I don't care because I think, like me, you probably want to just relish for one more moment how amazing this trajectory has been. Marcus Suzak is the award-winning author of five books, including international bestseller The Book Thief which spent more than a decade on the New York Times' top ten and is translated into more than 40 languages, establishing Zuzak as one of Australia's most successful authors. To date, Marcus has held the number one position on Amazon.com, Amazon.co.uk and the New York Times bestseller list, as well as in other countries across South America, Europe and Asia. His books... The Underdog, Fighting Ruben Wolf, When Dogs Cry and The Messenger and The Book Thief have been awarded numerous honours ranging from literary prizes, Reader's Choice Awards and prizes voted on by booksellers. As you may be aware, in 2013 The Book Thief became a movie. But in 2014, Zusak received the American Library Association's Margaret Edwards Award for his body of work ranging from The Underdog up to The Book Thief. So when you put it in context, this wasn't an accident that the book thief became the book thief. This man was already kicking a lot of goals before that came along. So as you can also well imagine, it's been a wee while since Marcus has had a book published. His much anticipated Bridge of Clay is set for release in October this year in the USA, the UK and Australia with foreign translations and rights to follow. It's already sold or pre-sold 500,000 copies in hardback in the US alone. And the book isn't even out yet. On that note, will you please join me in welcoming Marcus Suzak. I know you're going to hate me for that. I had to tell them. You're not going to tell
2: them. So here we are in Milton Theatre. Who would have thought it? Did you imagine yourself up here, Milton Theatre, at the inaugural launch of StoryFest?
3: I'm glad anyone's turned up at all. It's, uh, it's, uh, these sort of nights always take you back. Thanks for coming, everyone. I mean, I know you've all got so many things you could be doing tonight. And uh, you do go back to the beginning where things really started. And I remember when my first book came out in the year 2000 and uh, I got sent over to Western Australia to do some things in libraries and I got sent to Margaret River and everyone said, ''Oh, Margaret River.'' And I was doing a reading in the library... And, uh, and they said, oh, it's a great town, you know, we love the arts and great reading town. And of course, you, know, you can pretty much figure out what happened. I went to do the, the reading in the library and of course no one turned up. And <laughs> um, that's not even the best part. The best part is the librarian still made me read from my book. <laughs> Just to her. And uh, if that had happened tonight, I would have just said no. Nah, I'm going to the pub. So, uh, so I guess you learn by those things happening. So, uh, so no, it's just a real thrill to be here, and uh, and thanks for for having me.
2: In fact, you're really a Milton boy, a Milton local, an almost Milton local. What's your connection with Milton, Marcus?
3: I'd never, I'd never say local because um, I've never lived here, and. I'm always careful about being a local anywhere uh, because I just feel like people get a bit silly about ownership. There are rules, but, aren't
2: there? Yeah,
3: and uh, but no, I've known this area since I was six years old and just fell in love with it already then, and so I've been really lucky. I mean, I think this is one of the great treasures of the earth, and uh, and to be able to spend more than three decades coming down here is a, a real privilege, and that's why a night like this is sort of the icing on the cake.
2: What do you love about it? What is it about Milton that, that you find most compelling? I
3: mean, it's just the whole area. I just... I, you know, I'll be specific, and, or I'll just take one small part to tell the whole. I just love getting up in the morning here really early and walking my two dogs uh, anywhere from the beach to, you know, the hinterland or wherever. It's just that there, there's so much... I think the mornings here are especially special.
2: There's something about the sun, there's something about the colour of the vegetation and the nature here, which is somehow softer than Sydney, that are, anyway, when I woke up today, that's what I felt.
3: Yeah, uh, and there aren't as many complete bastards. <laughs> so, uh, I actually, I just saw my son laughing at that, and uh, <laughs> and that that's probably, you know, that's the if that's, that's probably all I'll get tonight from him, but, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, you know, I just, I don't want to go too far now, but no, there's just something special, and I think people want to protect it, and so it feels, it feels like that when you come here.
2: But Marcus, to you, your new book, Bridge of Clay, Clay is finished, and the publication date has now been confirmed for October. Does this make you feel really excited or really nervous?
3: I don't know. Uh, sometimes the best thing is to say i don 't know when you know the when you don 't know the answer, and <clears throat> at the moment i 'm still doing my very last edits and more how I feel is not i 'm not relieved yet yeah i 'm not happy yet i 'm never happy uh, with a book and it 's been more than a decade in the writing, and this book was like nothing i 'd ever written before in the sense of I wanted it to be better. And people would say, you don't have to write a better book than The Book Thief, you just have to write a different book. And I'd say, well, no, I've always tried to write a better book. Why shouldn't this one be? But this one felt like I was, I was fighting for the world championship and myself to write this book. And I'm nearly at the end of it now. And I'm in that stage where I'm, I want to... I, I'm both completely sick of the sight of it, but I don't want to let it go either. Mm. And uh, and so I think there are a lot of mixed feelings. And I've never been that kind of author who says, oh, I dream of my characters and I, can't, I just can't leave them. They just come to me in <laughs> dreams. I was like, oh, I'm sick of them from the moment <laughs> I look at them because uh, they give me so many problems. But uh, this time around, and I know when I get to the end of re-reading and re-reading and reworking this book and when I, look, I get to the end, I know I'm going to miss them. And, uh, I, and I think that's how much this book means to me.
2: When you say you know you're going to miss them, once you've finished those final edits, once the book can't be changed, is that when they leave you? Because you'll be talking about them for ages. But do they leave you when the written page, when the form is done?
3: I think I've learned now that nothing ever leaves you. It's a little bit like family You know, you just can't, you can't change... In a way, you can't change people, you can't... And and in this sense, I can't change myself in that I work so hard to get the characters as right as I can make them that I think you always keep a part of that struggle Mm. and you keep the joy as well. And uh, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm one of the luckiest writers in the world. I, I consider that I can make a living out of writing... I can, even my, even the times I hate it, I love hating it. And uh, when I'm wallowing in how hopeless I am, and uh, it's a bit like surfing. You're like, how can I always be the shittest surfer out here? And it's like that with writing too. Like, why am I, why can't I write quicker? Why can't I write better? But it's what brings you back. It's what brings you back and brings you back because, like I said, you're always fighting to, to, to find the best version of yourself.
2: So let's go right back then. When did you first decide that you wanted to be a writer?
3: I was 16 and I was a big fan of when I was in high school, we had to read the novels of S.E. Hinton and she was 16 when she wrote The Outsiders and Rumble, then Rumblefish, that was then, this is now and, um, and I thought, I'm going to do that. Oh, I want to, and I loved those books and they made me feel alive. It was like that magic act of turning pages and turning pages and you don't realise you're turning pages, you're there. And I thought, that's what I want to do with my life. And, of course, I tried to write my first book then and those eight pages could be <laughs> entered into a competition for the worst book ever written. And it was about a boy who had some sort of cyst in his head and uh, mm-hmm. he could explode at any time. <laughs> and on page eight, I had nothing left, so <laughs> he had to go. And uh, and so I've I've still got those eight pages somewhere.
2: I oh, did. I think there's a publisher in the room. The eight pages are still there.
3: I think it's um, but you've got to be embarrassed about where you started. And I look back at then the three manuscripts I wrote that got rejected from publishers. And I'm so glad they didn't get published now because they weren't good enough. And I'd seen books that were probably of similar quality get published and I don't think it did anything good for those writers who were around my age as well because they thought, I've made it. And, and I was delivering books of similar standard getting rejected and I thought, no, I've got to do better. And I, had, I think the hardest thing about being a writer is you know what you love and you know what made you want to do it, but you can't just copy that. You've got to find yourself. And I remember having a period of three or four years where I just couldn't finish anything. I couldn't even finish a first chapter. And I thought, God, I'm lazy. You know, it's the the writer's intent to always punish him or herself for laziness, for hopelessness, for all these things. But I think what I've looked back and realised now is that no, I was just really trying to find my own voice. And it's not easy to do. And now I look at it, the way I think about writing now... I can't even remember what your question was. Um, <laughs> but what... Because um, I've gone so far off the track. But I remember when I was a kid, I did athletics. And I remember running a race once, 100 metres, and I thought I'd won and I got put <laughs> in sixth position... And I was all, you know, I was upset and all this and I went and I complained to my dad and my dad said to me, "You only," he said, you know what, I actually thought you won as well but you made one mistake, you didn't win by enough. You've got to win by so much that they can't take it off you. And I think about writing like that now, not in a sense of being better than anyone mm-hmm. or anything like that but to write so much like myself so that no one could have written that. And that's what I feel. If not, I don't care if... I care if the book Thief is good, for example, but I know that no-one else could have written that book and that's what I'm trying to do.
2: Your earlier books, the first three books, uh, have the protagonist of Cameron Wolfe. Was he your voice? Was that the first time you found the voice that satisfied you?
3: I don't know, actually. I just—I mean, those books started because I couldn't write anything else... And I'd been trying to write this great Australian novel or something. And then I was just... I went for a walk. And uh, I'd go for these long, rambling walks when I was in my early 20s. And, uh, And I just thought of these two boys who tried to... I thought... I'd just been to the dentist. I got one of those slips in the mail and it said... You know where it says, you've not been to the dentist for such and such months? (laughs) Months was crossed out and it said four years. And so I thought I'll go and then I got fillings and they really... And I paid cash and I thought, geez, a lot of money is going through these dental surgeries. And I got this idea of these two idiot brothers who would try to rob their local dentist. So the first line of my first ever published book was... We were watching telly when we decided to rob the dentist. And of course, they go there and they want to rob the dentist. They got a cricket bat and a baseball bat, and there's this beautiful dental nurse behind the counter, and so they end up getting checkups instead. And, uh, <laughs> and the appointments get made, and then they go back, and of course, she's not there. It's the really hulking dental nurse who's there. And, and that So in a way, I wasn't searching for a voice. I think that's... And the beauty of writing is all your best... All your best things are usually accidents and they come to you because you're at your desk writing. You don't normally get your best ideas walking along the beach. You get your best ideas sitting at your desk writing. It's a bit like if if someone said, ''I want to get better at running.'' I wouldn't say, well, sit on the couch for a while or go for a walk on the beach and think about running. I would say, just go out and run. And that's how you get better. And that's how your book gets better incrementally, um, just by working. And that's, I think, how you find your voice. And I think in the case of Bridge of Clay, I had all these problems with this book and all these characters. and And I got to this point halfway through, about three or four years ago, where I just... All these bits, I go, that bit was really good. That was really, <coughs> sorry, that was really hard. I get to the next bit and I go, it's going to be easy now. And then it would just be dead. Mm. And so then I just went, all right, this is how we're going to do it. It's either alive or it's dead. That's the, that's the criteria. And so that's what you're looking... I'm always looking for the point in a book where it's, you're feeling life in it. You're feeling life. But, and sometimes it comes easily... And sometimes it comes with a lot of difficulty.
2: is it as easy as that? You keep the live bits and you get rid of the dead bits?
3: No, it's not. (laughs) Uh, So it's either, right, cut the dead bits out or find a way quick to make them alive. And because the problem was I was taking forever to write that book and I was just sinking and sinking and sinking. And the best thing that actually happened was my wife said to me, right, you've got one week (laughs) to get this back on track or else you and Clay, the character, you know. I think you need a break from each other. And having it taken off me was the best mm. thing that could have happened because suddenly I, I think in that case it was right. If you want to make this be alive again, you've really got to get in there and get your hands dirty. And that's what I did. I stopped worrying so much. You can put a lot of effort into worrying about your writing or you can just put a lot of effort into writing. And I think we do this... And I, I want to make something really clear, and that is I don't think of writing, for me anyway, as, a, as an art form. I'm a tradesman, really, and I just go to work and I just keep chipping away and chipping away and, uh, and you're, just, you're waiting for the moment to come. You're waiting for... But it won't come unless you're there doing the work. And, and so that's, that's pretty much you know, all that effort most of the, the biggest effort is just getting to the desk, and uh, and ma- and making that commitment to it, and being prepared to fail. I think writing's just always testing you, and yeah, you know, people always get upset when I say, "Oh, my brother hasn't even read any of my books," and uh, and they go, "Oh, that's terrible." I say, yeah. Well, I don't go and look at any of the houses he's painted, you know. It, and so, and I still think it's it's like a it's a trade that you're always working on and, and trying to to get right. And uh, you know, the facts. But you're also risking a lot by doing it. You're, you're risking, you know, people criticise you, people don't like your book, people, you know. And uh, finishing a book is no easy thing. But if it was easy, then everybody would do it.
2: Let's talk about commas, Marcus. I'm going to read the first sentence, or the first couple of sentences from the book, The Messenger. It's a corker of an opening, opening couple of sentences. The gunman, comma, is useless. I know it, he knows it, the whole bank knows it. What's happening, Marcus? And then we'll get to the comma.
3: <laughs> Sorry, I just tuned out there. Uh... <laughs> What's happening in that scene? <laughs> well, it's funny. That's another beginning. I seem to have... I think as a writer you, you have... We're all attracted to different things and I know there's a book by Stephen King about writing and he says we all have a sort of drainpipe that catches ideas and, we're all, he's, and he's drawn to horror and I seem to be drawn to running and um, stealing. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and that beginning came from sitting out in, in Kayama outside the bank where there was a 15 minute parking zone and you can, I just want to just say how much it pains me to say this but it wasn't even my idea. My wife said to me, what if you were in that bank when it was getting robbed and your car was out in the 15 minute parking zone? How would you get out to move your car? And I'm sitting there and I go, oh shit, that's a really good idea. <laughs> I have to use it, but yet it hurts me to use it because how can I give you the credit? And, uh, and that's how that whole scene... Ca- and that first chapter of The Messenger all is one of the... It's probably the only case in my whole writing career where a first ch- that chapter just almost wrote itself. And the comma between the gunman and is useless shouldn't really be there. And, <laughs> and uh, in, I know in other versions around the world... It isn't.
2: Ah, now.
3: I fight with editors about commas all the time.
2: Yes, well, that was my question because you use, for, for me, you use the commas often as a metre, as a rhythm, as music. Is that fair?
3: Yeah, uh, especially in Bridge of Clay in the new book where, they, like, I'll, I'll have a comma somewhere and it's, or a word. And I mm. say, maybe we sh- an editor will say, Shall we take that word out? And I say, How it, it, the whole, the whole sentence revolves around that word and you want to take it out. It doesn't work with, without that word in it. Or they want to put a word in and I say, no, if you put that word in, the rhythm's all wrong. And, uh, and I especially... I, it, it's so much to me, it's not about just the story. It's not about what is said. It is about how everything flows and uh-huh. how every... so. And what I would also say is if I take that comma out of that sentence... I don't just have to remodel the sentence. Mm-hmm. I remodel the sentence before it, the, re- the sentence after it. I have to rewrite the whole... Not rewrite, but I then have to edit the whole paragraph and then I have to edit the paragraph before it and after it. It's and the, then I do the page. And So it, So and
2: just s- keep the comma. Keep the just comma. keep
3: the comma in most mm-hmm. cases, although I'm generally fairly easy to work with. <laughs> <laughs>
2: You know what's interesting? In preparing for this event, I've been reading your work again... ...but I've also been listening to audiobooks. Audiobooks are fantastic. You know, when you're running, when you're doing the washing... ...when you're in the car. And the rhythm of the writer really comes to the fore in the audiobook. And in fact, in the audiobook with the messenger, the comma works. It's Ed Kennedy. The gunman is useless. I know it. He knows it. So it becomes music... And it's the same thing, I think, with The Book Thief. Now, of course, The Book Thief was published after The Messenger in 2005. Who in the audience has read The Book Thief? Who's read it twice? Keep your hands up. Three times? Keep your hands up. If you were uh, hands down, we've still got a few, we'll assume that's five and upwards. So it's a book that keeps people reading over and over again. Have you thought about why... This book, in particular, uh, has encouraged young people and adults to read it more than once
3: i don't know because i just I'd never ever want to take anything for granted so i'm i want to I'm a bit careful about how to answer that uh, mm. because all I do is i just I just write it mm. and then the world decides or the reader decides, and so i can't. At the same time, uh, you know, I, there are so many people who don't like that book. There are, and I, I always put it in the context of someone like J.K. Rowling, where you get people, oh, Harry, people are getting so... really bagging Harry Potter, and, and it's because so many people love it. And mm-hmm. so I think what you're doing the whole time, and, and this is where... And I can't... Thank people enough for having read the book because usually usually when you start out writing, you expect no one to know who you are, no one to care who you are, no one to have read any of your books, and then for people to do that, it's really generous. And uh, and so for me, all I knew when I was writing that book that I let go of Hmm. of things. I let go of the I. I I was trying to. I started out trying to write a hundred a one hundred page novella. And, you know, and for the people who have read it, you can tell I got a bit out of hand. I mean, it ends up being 580 pages. And, uh, and I think what happened... So a couple of different things. I thought no-one would read that book. I thought it's set in Nazi Germany, it's narrated by death, nearly everybody dies, oh, and it's 580 pages long, you know. Uh, I imagine someone trying to recommend that to their friends. You know, I thought no-one's going to want to read it. I wouldn't have gone to the... Sh- I wouldn't have bought it. And so I let go of the idea of someone reading it. And so I just thought, well, no-one's going to read it. You might as well make it exactly how it should be. And if anything, I think whether people realise it or not, maybe that's the thing that Mm -hmm. people understand in that book. I think they know that the person who wrote it was so... ..that it meant everything to them. And to me... That's what it was. I think maybe I would often define it as I'd written four books. I'd written five books. Four that really mean something to me, and one that means everything to me. And that book's The Book Thief. And and I have to say now, after 13 years since that book's come out, that Bridge of Clay actually means even more to me than The Book Thief, Mm. which is I think because it was probably maybe because it was so hard. Maybe if I'd written it in a year. Maybe not, but I think maybe that's what draws people to the book thief I think they can see what it meant to me to write it
2: so if you can say that about bridge of clay you must be pleased with it are you
3: no that book will have twenty percent improvement in it till the day I die <laughs> and uh, and but that doesn't mean I don't I can't love it and I do I I love it but I see fault with it and as I do with the book thief in the book thief I went too far sometimes with the you know, death interrupting things and so on. But then I sort of think I was happy to err on that side because I thought probably better to have gone too far than to not go far enough. And I think it was a book that demanded that. And I feel like um, the new book is, is similar to that in that way. I think I'm just proud of the effort. I think I can love the effort, even if I don't always love the actual result.
2: Those of you who have read the book Thief will know it's the story of, uh, of Liesel Memminger, who's a German girl who lives with her foster parents in Munich during World War II. Like Liesel, um, Marcus, your mother is German, and she also grew up with foster parents. Is Liesel's story your mother's story?
3: Um, in some ways, it is, but I think the moment you fictionalise something, it's not. You don't see that person's face anymore. So a lot of the things that have or a percentage of the things that happened in the book Thief did happen to my mum, but the moment her brother dies, which is a, a Liesl's mother die, um, brother dies, at the start of the book Thief, I didn't see my mum anymore because that didn't happen to her. Mm-hmm. It happened in another, piece, another story of someone else we know. And so suddenly, I think as soon as you start making something up, it, it takes on a life of its own. So mm-hmm. I never saw it as my mum anymore. I never saw The Neighbour as my dad, where I'd used a lot of my dad's stories as well to cobble that all together. And uh, they just became themselves, and I think that's what you want as a writer of fiction anyway. I, I, I don't think I could write a biography or non-fiction because my, my writing instincts, much in that, Steve, like that what I was talking about with Stephen King, is just to imagine and to lie... And to, to use cunning uh, in a way, it's sort of maybe... It, some, you, you do feel... One of my um, favourite writers is Michael Chabon who wrote The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay and he, he's the sort of writer... He, one of my favourite lines from a book is from his book where it says, The Rotterdam... So he's talking about an ocean liner coming into New York Harbour and he says, The Rotterdam came into New York Harbour like a mountain wearing a dinner jacket and (laughs) such a great image and Mm. to me that's a writer who's done the work and suddenly it's just like he's in the sandpit playing Mm. and that's what I'm always trying to get to when I'm writing and when I, I think of that idea or think of that strange image that shouldn't make sense but makes sense in a different way that's when I'm just a kid and I think that's what I love about being writing no matter the subject no matter if it's a book supposedly for younger people or for adults or whatever I think in writing I get to be a kid again and uh, and I think that's what I love I'm most alive when I'm I'm writing and I'm happiest when I'm writing well I'm not that happy if I'm writing and it's not going well but that's better than not writing at all
2: could you not write at all
3: oh probably (laughs) it's the easiest job in the world to not do (laughs) and you would think though that I Mm. the problem is I'm not I'm not useful if I'm not writing. If, I, if I'm not writing, I just want to go back to bed. I don't use excuses like mow the lawn or vacuum or anything like that. I just feel like going back to bed. And, uh, and so, no, I think, I, I, just, I think it's probably true. When, when the idea of Bridge of Clay had been taken away from me... And my wife said to me that, that like, the most sinister words you could ever say... OK, sinister's a bit strong. <laughs> uh, the the, the, wo- the scariest words, she said to me, you know, maybe you should start a blog. Well, actually, I've got a blog. <laughs> I just never write on it. She said, maybe you should write your blog. I thought, oh, my God, I've got to get back to writing that book uh, because writing on a blog is just uh, torture for me anyway. And uh, And so... I can't just – the thing is, though, I can't – like, there are – you you look at, say, a singer like Bob Dylan who just – or a a writer like Joyce Carol Oates, you can just tell they just always have to be writing. It's like breathing. Mm. And I don't think there are many writers like that. I think most writers have to drag themselves to the desk because it's – and I like that because it's a challenge. I don't think I could live without the challenge. Yes. is what i'm is what i mean but i could live and, and my challenge happens to be writing and it's what i love and it's the only thing i can do well enough to make a living so um so that's what i'm s- not even stuck with i i do love it and uh and i love the possibilities
2: huh. let's give some statistics for the audience. The statistics for the book's thief: it's sold 16 million copies worldwide, it's published in 32 foreign language territories and it's spent 500 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Was it an immediate success, Marcus?
3: Sorry, it wasn't. Was it an
2: immediate success? Before
3: I even answer that, I've got a better statistic for you. Oh, yeah, sorry. (laughs) I'm out of date, clearly. No, no. the, The new book, having taken 13 years to write... I, I worked out that it's something like 128,624 words and you know, the amount of days in those 13 years <laughs> is such and such amount of uh, days which comes out at as, as an average of something like 1.9 words per day.
2: <laughs> but they are great and words, Marcus. <laughs> not
3: even two. Not even two. But almost, and almost two which is when my daughter she said to me one day we were talking about work and oh, I'm working so hard and she just looked at me over <laughs> over the cereal box you work said, <laughs> so, yeah it is actually a job and uh, and so no I mean as far as the book thief goes to me it's just a it's kind of a magical I mean from for me it's a in my writing life it's kind of a magical book and it's the sort of book you dream of having where especially when you didn't think anyone was going to read it and suddenly you know 13 years later you're still here and I'm here because of the book thief it's such a gift and uh, and so I'm just really lucky to have it and and it's funny because I mentioned J.K. Rowling before and you have people come up... like You you know—you run into a, a guy you played football against or with as a, when you were growing up and they say, oh, gee, I bet you wish you'd written Harry Potter, you know, which is the worst thing you can say to any writer. I mean, he's a plumber. You know, I felt like saying, well, I bet you wish you ran the biggest plumbing business in Sydney... And uh, and he would say, oh, no, I'm just happy doing what I do. My answer to that question is, no, I'm really glad J.K. Rowling wrote Harry Potter because that's such a gift to the world. And all the statistics and all the ideas of how many copies you've sold, you, you can never take it for granted. You can never be flippant about it. So I think for me, I set out... And I got lost in an earlier answer and now I've found what I wanted to say, which was I just want I think I set out... I, I, I wanted to write a book that could be somebody's favourite book, mm-hmm. and that you've got to like. How hard is it? so hard to write someone's favourite book? I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird has been written, mm-hmm. a, and so many other great books. You, you're probably going to fall short, but you have to try. Mm-hmm. And so, um, for me, that that was always the intent—to try to write a book that would be a loved book. You know, because my the books I love are all on the top shelf. Um, at home and and so that's the kind of book I was trying to write and didn't think anyone would read it and so you just, it's a bonus that anybody has.
2: And what was the moment when something changed and it was the success that it's become? Was there a particular moment that you can identify?
3: Yeah, it was actually morning television in America. I went on a, the book had been out here for six months. I went on this TV Show Good Morning America. I was interviewed by. It was one of those classic America, only in America stories. It was St Patrick's Day. I went to New York. I was I was 29, I think. Now I was 30, but I still felt 14, you know. And, And I was in the big bad city. And we get St Patrick's Day, and we get into the lift to go up to the TV station. And there were—you could have fit six racehorses in this lift. And there were dancing girls in sequins. There were—there was a family. There was a—there was a reality TV show on at the time called *Little People in a Big World*. And it was a family that was half little people and half normal-sized people. And they, they were—it was a whole reality show about they were in the lift, and—and and then there were dogs. In the lift wearing spandex <laughs> outfits, and then there was me <laughs> from you know from australia you know from the suburbs of Australia and I got onto this show and it ended up being a really respected journalist interviewing me and those three minutes changed my life it was one it was one of those moments you could say that changed everything because that morning i don 't know what number because Amazon when it was just a book selling site and not. Swiss Army knife, no, every single thing you could buy on the planet. Uh, when it was that, um, it was a big thing to get mm-hmm. in the top hundred yeah. at Amazon. And you know, you'd look at your, you'd look at another book of yours, and it'd be number five hundred and sixty-six thousand. But because of that three-minute interview, where this guy he said he'd re- he'd actually read the book, which is not that Mm -hmm. common Uh, and then he quoted the book and then he read from the book and then he said the book made him cry and that was when I could see my publisher jumping up and down in the corner (laughs) so I was like what the hell is she doing I've never seen her run (laughs) let alone jump and uh, and then that morning the book started going up and by the end of the day it was number one at Amazon and it was uh, because of three minutes on on, you know, you can sort of bag morning TV and I think, oh, no, let's not be too harsh. (laughs) 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 You know, uh, and so... And that changed everything. And from there, then it got on the New York Times bestseller list. Then it didn't... Like, no publisher in England wanted to publish that book prior to that moment. Mm. And I would have given it to them for nothing. And it was my (laughs) one moment of darkness in my whole writing Mm. career because suddenly it was oh, yeah, there are all these publishers in England who want to publish it. And suddenly I just went, well, now they're going to pay for it. (laughs) And and so... uh, But I still didn't ask for too much. And it was just one of those moments where it was a golden... It was just a purely golden morning. And and I remember that night and my family... That my family, we're not... You know, I've got... My mum's German. My dad's Austrian. It's not... (laughs) <laughs> there's not that much hugging. <laughs> so, you know, there's not that much. I mean, well, they're great loving people and my mum's hilarious, my dad's great. and uh, But, you know, we, I, it had been a very long time since what I'm about to tell you happened. But I remember that night I had uh, just such a whirlwind of a day. I suddenly realised that this book was going to be so much more successful than I ever dreamed and it was going to be something Big was going to happen with this book, and I remember calling home that night, or calling my mum and dad that night, and telling them that I loved them. And it was because, and, and if nothing else, that was the greatest gift that this book had given me. Because even though we know all that, I just hadn't said it for a very long time. So, um, so yeah, the, so you, you don't know what gifts a book is going to give you.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you.
3: Such a nice audience. Just clapping. (laughs) It's Milton.
2: (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about Bridge of Clay. It's the story of one boy, Clay Dunbar, who tries to cope with the tragedies in his life by doing one great thing, building a bridge. Clay is the fourth of five brothers. There's Rory, there's Henry, there's Matthew, there's Clay and Tommy. And although the book is Clay's book, the narrator is his brother Matthew. To give us a bit of a feel for the Dunbar boys and their chaotic household, would you read us an early passage from the book? This is a world first, can I tell you? Sure. (laughs) Thank Thank you, you. Marcus. I just
3: also want to say I wrote a lot of this book down here and uh, – sorry, I didn't say anything. I I wrote a lot of this book down here and in a way – at a time where I really needed it. So it's sort of always linked uh, to the South Coast. Uh, So here are the Dunbar boys, a bit of a snapshot of them. Many considered us tearaways, barbarians. Mostly they were right. Our mother was dead, our father had fled, we swore like bastards, fought like contenders and punished each other at pool, at table tennis, always on third or fourth hand tables and often set up on the lumpy grass of the backyard at Monopoly, darts, football, cards, at everything we could get our hands on. We had a piano, no one played. Our TV was serving a life sentence. The couch was in for 20. Sometimes when our phone rang, one of us would walk out, jog along the porch and go next door. It was just old Mrs Chilman. She'd bought a new bottle of tomato sauce and couldn't get the bloody thing open. <laughs> then whoever it was would come back in and let the front door slam and life went on again. Yes, for the five of us, life always went on. It was something we beat into and out of each other, especially when things went completely right or completely wrong. That was when we'd get out onto Archer Street in evening, afternoon. We'd walk at the city, the towers, the streets, the worried-looking trees. We'd take in the loud loud-mouth conversations held from pubs, houses and unit blocks, so certain this was our place. We half expected to collect it all up and carry it home, tucked under our arms... It didn't matter that we'd wake up the next day to find it gone again, on the loose, all buildings and bright light. Oh, and one more thing, possibly most important. In amongst a small roster of dysfunctional pets, we were the only people we knew of in the end to be in possession of a mule. And what a mule he was. I'm just going to... It does end over on the other page. I'm just basically... I'm just going to... I'll read on that little bit because I I would like to introduce you to Achilles the mule. (laughs) The animal in question was named Achilles, and there was a backstory longer than a country mile as to how he ended up in our suburban backyard in one of the racing quarters of the city. On one hand, it involved the abandoned stables and practice track behind our house, an outdated council bylaw, and a sad old fat man with bad spelling. On the other, it was our dead mother, our fled father, and the youngest, Tommy Dunbar. At the time, not everyone in the house was even consulted. The mule's arrival was controversial after at least one heated argument with Rory. Oi, Tommy, what's going on here? What? What do you mean, what? Are you shitting me? There's a donkey in the backyard. He's not a donkey, he's a mule. What's the difference? A donkey's a donkey. A mule's a cross between... I don't care if it's a quarter horse crossed with a Shetland bloody pony. What's it doing under the clothesline? He's eating the grass. I can see that. We somehow managed to keep him, or more to the point, the mule stayed. As was the case with the majority of Tommy's pets too, there were a few problems when it came to Achilles. Most notably, the mule had ambitions. With the rear fly screen dead and gone, he was known to walk into the house when the back door was ajar, let alone left fully open. It happened at least once a week, and at least once a week I blew a gasket. It sounded something like this. Jesus Christ! As a blasphemer, I was pretty rampant in those days, well known for splitting the Jesus and emphasising the Christ. If I've told you bastards once, I've told you a hundred goddamn times. Shut the back door, and so on.
2: Mm. Thank you. And we heard it first. Thank you very I, much, Marcus. I just Marcus. want to
3: qualify. There's a, there are five boys and there are five animals. They've got the mule, Achilles. They've got a dog called Rosie. Now I'm, I'm getting lost. They've got a goldfish called Agamemnon and a cat called Hector. Oh, sorry, and the pigeon. pigeon is called uh, Telemachus, but they all call him T because they're so sick of the stupid names that Tommy has given the animals. <laughs>
2: It'll be out in October. I'm sure you're all looking forward to it. We're coming almost towards the end of our time. There'll be some questions for the audience. I have them ready. I'm told that you're on the promise, Marcus, to tell the egg story.
3: Yeah, my kids, like all kids, are really annoying and, uh, they, I, and they're so lovely, they're so sweet. And every time we have people over, two or three people, four people, they say, tell the egg story, tell the egg story. i like, I can't tell it in front of two people. The next time I speak somewhere and you come, I'm going to tell the egg story. And it's this story, and I'll qualify it just by saying, when you're a writer and you, you're not making any money off your books, you can speak in high schools or primary schools to make a living... And so that's what I did for seven or eight years, really constantly. And you, your first priority, speaking in high schools, because my books were high school age, your first priority is to survive. And, uh, and, my, so, and I did that by telling stories. I didn't talk about, oh, I've written this book and you should buy it. No-one wants to hear that, especially not 200 boys who want to kill you because it's their PE lesson <laughs> and they're coming to listen to the author. Uh, speak. I actually heard kids saying that on the way twice. I'm not even going to tell you what they said, but it was <laughs> brutal. And I thought, all right, I've got to be on my game here. And so I would tell this story to show kids and adults, actually, because it's not restricted. I, I don't think stories really should have an age restriction in how they work. And so I would tell this story to show how I think when I write. So I'll, quickly, I'll do it as quickly mm-hmm. as I can. I have to start the story by asking for some, or an audience question or two, which is Can I, and I'm sorry if I'm leaving out the only children in the audience, but can you put your hand up if you are an older sibling? Okay, now put your hand up if you're a, a, a youngest or, or a middle sibling. Okay. What I notice every time when I do that, is that the, old, the, one, the older siblings always put their hands up like this. <laughs> they always smile. The younger siblings always put their hands up like this. <laughs> and that was me. I'm the youngest of four. I had two older sisters and an older brother. And my brother, growing up, we were the closest in age. He didn't treat me very well growing up. And to give you a bit of an idea, I would, you know, I'd walk into the kitchen, I'd get punched. <laughs> for no reason. I'd say to him, what, what, what the hell was that for? And he'd just go, oh, I was bored. <laughs> or at school, I'd be, walking, uh, I'd be walking past the lockers. I'd get squashed into the wall. There would be my brother or one of his friends. And he could also work on me psychologically. It wasn't just mind-numbingly violent things. We would get home from school um, and we would watch a constant... At 3.30, it was on constant loop. It was either Bewitched, I Dream of (laughs) Genie, or Get Smart. And we would watch that every day at 3.30 and we'd eat toast. And I remember taking my toast into the lounge room once and leaving it there and going back to the kitchen to get a drink. Now, anyone here with an older brother knows that's a mistake. You don't leave food unsupervised. And so he found my toast and he didn't shove all the toast in and eat it. He didn't hide it. What he did, he took each piece of the square bread... He folded it in half, took a huge bite out of the middle and then unfolded it again, put it back on the plate. (laughs) So when I get back, my two toes have got these two massive holes in it. Now, you can still eat it, but you know you've been beaten. It's It's a symbol of who's in charge, that hole. And so my whole life I'd wanted to get him back for everything and I finally got my chance. When I was 15, my brother was 17 and we worked with my dad and my dad was a house painter and we'd go to work on Saturdays and we'd leave the house we'd get up at 6:30 we'd leave the house by 7 by 7:30 we'd be at somebody else's house painting and we'd work through till midday and we'd sit on paint tins and eat our lunch and my brother had a red esky that he took to work with him in that esky he had two sandwiches a drink and two hard boiled eggs that he boiled up the night before, and he put them in the fridge. In the morning, he put them in his esky. Some of you can already see where the story's going, or at least you think you do. All right, and, and so he, he would do that religiously, and he, and he would eat the eggs at work. Now, he would crack the eggs against the wall or on top of his esky, and he'd peel it, and then he'd eat it. Until one week, my dad said to him, he said, I used to work with this guy back in Vienna who had hard-boiled eggs at work and he'd crack them on his head. And so my brother said, oh, I'll give it a try. And, he's, he, and you have to do it pretty hard. I know this because I'm dumb enough to have tried it myself. You do have to do it pretty hard. And so, but he cracked it and he peeled it, he ate it. And he was so proud of the achievement that he did the second egg as well. And then he did it the week after and the week after. And it just became part of his lunch routine get the the egg out and crack it on his head, Mm -hmm. until one week he did something to me at school. I don't even remember anymore what it was, but I remember just sitting on the the floor of the playground and it was like a ray of light (laughs) came out of the sky Mm -hmm. and I saw what I had to do. Mm -hmm. That Friday he boiled his eggs and he put them in the fridge. In the morning Mm -hmm. he put them in his esky and at five minutes to seven, just before we left, he made the fatal error of going to the toilet. While he was in there, I quickly took the esky back to the fridge, took the lid off, got the eggs out, put them back in and replaced them, of course. The two hard-boiled eggs with two raw eggs. Put put the esky back next to the front door in the exact same position. Even the handle was at exactly the same angle. It was perfect. And he came out of the bathroom, shoved past me, went out the front door to my dad's combi van... (laughs) And I remember thinking as he left the house, this is going to be the best day of my life. <laughs> but, but all that morning, though, all that morning... You know when you do something like that and at the time you're going, how good am I? This is the greatest thing ever. All that morning at start, I was torn between the ag- this agony and ecstasy. There's the agony... Or there was the ecstasy of seeing him do it, but then there was the agony of what was going to happen afterwards. And by 11 o'clock I got so worried... I cracked under the pressure and I went and I confessed what I'd done to my dad. Don't worry, it'll be all right. And, uh, <laughs> he goes, he, so my dad, he's high up on a ladder painting some <laughs> eaves. So underneath the roof there, he looks down, he says to me, what are you doing here? You should be working. Cause my dad was always yelling at us at work, telling us to stop bludging, hurry up, stop throwing putty at each other, all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and uh, he said, what, what are you doing? You should be working. I looked up. I said, oh, I've done something really bad. Now, he came down the ladder. He said, all right, show me what you buggered up this time. Because my dad was also used to me spilling paint, trekking mud through people's houses. First time I worked with him, I was 10, I think. And I had to paint this strange thing. It was a luggage chute. These people had a little door in their wall. And in that tunnel in there was all their suitcases and everything. And I... It's the least visible thing in the house, so I got to paint it. And uh, first thing I did, I was 10, painted myself into the corner. I'd just sit there for an hour and a half waiting for the paint to dry. (laughs) I yelled out, but no one came. All right? And so my dad was used to me mucking things up and uh, and all this sort of thing. So he said, all right, show me what you've done. This time, I said, no, it's nothing like that. Don't worry. Just forget it. And... uh, He said, look, I've come down that ladder. You're going to show me what you've done. And uh, I really was getting cold feet. He said, just tell me. I said, oh, I said, okay. I said, you know Rob's two hard-boiled eggs. I've I've replaced them with (laughs) two raw eggs. And my dad looked at me. He put his paintbrush down. He shook his head. He said, son, that's brilliant. (laughs) He said, I can He said, ''I can't believe I didn't think of that myself.'' He said, ''I should have thought of that weeks ago.'' He started getting really cranky at himself. He said, ''Right, you go back to work, I'll go back to work. ''Don't say anything. I'll be back here at 12.'' All right?" So we get back, I'm sitting on my paint tin, my dad's sitting on his, he's already trying not to laugh and we're waiting with bated breath for my brother. And finally, my brother comes along, and we're both watching him. We've got our eyes glued to him. And, uh, and he noticed. He said, what are you two looking at? Um, we're just, nothing, nothing. But I'm, of course, thinking, yeah, you just wait and see. And he reached in. He hadn't even sat down yet. Got the first egg out we had, without thinking, just like clockwork, cracked it on his head and the egg went over his nose, on his mouth, on his chin, eventually landed on his shoes and he's just standing there. <laughs> it's the first time I'd ever seen my brother speechless. He's like, Ugh. my dad, he's on the ground laughing. <laughs> and, I was, and I'm looking at him going, now he's going to blame my dad. But this is even better. <laughs> All right. But then he noticed me not laughing, which was extremely not the natural... It was not the natural thing to do. And so so uh, he said it was you, wasn't it? And by then I gave up because I was proud of what I'd done anyway. And I said, oh, yeah, it was me. He picked me up. He took me around the side of the house. He pushed me against the wall. Now I just painted that wall. So I'd paint all down my back. And you know what boys are like. He hit me once in the stomach. And then just with the palm of his hand, he just tapped me on the nose... So my eyes were watering, I was winded. But after two or three minutes, the pain slowly went away and that's when the smile returned to my face and, and I just thought, you know, I reckon that was worth it. <laughs> two minutes of pain, but the memory of that moment lasts our whole lives. So now when he comes and visits me, the first thing I say to him, my brother lives in Berrydale, uh, so between Cooma and Jindabyne, and when he comes and visits me, I say, "Geez." Four and a half half hour drive, you must be hungry. You know, I haven't got much here, but I could at least maybe make you some eggs or something like that. <laughs> he says, God, that was more than 20 years ago. When are you ever going to get over that? And I just say, I just look at him like very seriously and I just say, I'm never getting over that. <laughs> so one time I got him back for everything. Now, whilst that seems like a silly revenge story, and uh, it actually shows a lot about... Writing, or at least the way I think when I write, and I'll be really quick, um, at least three or four things. First thing is, I've just taken it from straight from my own life, and it's the old cliche, but it is the easiest place to start. We've all got a story. Secondly, I could ask you at least 50 questions about that story, small details. Like I could say, what colour was my brother's esky? You'd be able to tell me it was red. I could say, what did we sit on when we ate our lunch? Paint tins. Paint uh, tins. What sort of car did my dad drive? I think I mentioned a combi van. The main reason I mention it, yes, I wanted you to develop a picture in your head about this world that I'm describing, but the main reason is I just want you to believe me. <laughs> People believe you. Well, I, and there's the main reason I mentioned crawling into that thing to paint, because it's, that's how I own the story. It's like when you go and claim your jacket when you've lost it somewhere, you'll describe every little thing about the jacket... So they'll know it's yours, because how else would you know? And uh, the third thing is probably the most important, though. And that is, when I said to you, oh, now you know where the story's going, I knew fully well that you didn't know where it was going. You knew I was going to swap the eggs, but you didn't know I was going to take the detour to my dad, (laughs) which is the best moment in the story. And actually, every single time I've got a reaction out of you tonight... Has been when this has happened, has been when the unexpected has happened. I got a little wave of pity when I went to Margaret River and no one arrived and no one came, <laughs> but I got a really good reaction from you when the librarian still made me read from my book, because it 's not what should be happened. not just what should be happening. Who would do such a thing? And uh, it 's always the unexpected, and it can be comedic or it can be sad, or it can, it's the unexpected because that 's what makes our lives interesting. And the last thing about the story is basically I've told that story somewhere between 1,000 and one, maybe 1,500 times and it's become my best story to tell because of how many times I've edited it in that <laughs> process and I use that exact thing to write something like that ends up like that. I read and re... I mean, with The Book Thief, the first part of that, I read and reread and edited and rewrote somewhere between, uh, you know, probably up to 200 times. This book, thousands. God. Thousands. Uh, you know, it, it's just not... It's actually unhealthy, how many times. <laughs> I, I mean, I had to read from that tonight because my brain's been a bit scrambled from so many edits, but there was a time where I could almost read the first 100 pages of that book without looking at, looking at it. it as ridiculous. And, uh, but that's how much you have to want it. I think that's the, the last thing is, uh, you know, some people are just good at writing and it's easy. It's not easy for me. So don't, don't think for a second that, that you can't do it or it's, it's more you just have to have an iron will and, and at the same time a, a great joy for it as well.
2: Thank you, Marcus. We have a bit under 10 minutes for questions before Marcus is going to be signing copies of his books.
0: Can I ask how much do you know of the story or of how it's going to evolve when you start? How linear are you in writing? It's a
3: bit of I'm very structured so basically what I do and I I don't have, I, I basically I have an a notebook per book I'm working on which is usually one uh, and like I don't have six projects on the go you know people say have you got a lot of projects on the go I say no I've got one <laughs> and when when the new book wasn't working people would say just write one of your other ideas and I said I haven't got any other ideas <laughs> stuck with this every idea I've got's going into this book what I do is I basically write chapter headings does it do, do one of you have my notebook by any chance And uh, so I just write chapter headings over and over and over again, and I'll see if we can, I can, I can give. I mean, you're not going to see much, but I plan everything really stringently. Thank you. Uh, So this, just to put into perspective, most like for the book thief, I I went through two notebooks or one and a little bit of a notebook. Uh, This is the ninth notebook for Bridge of Clay. Uh, It just. And it never stops. So I could open this to any. This is the very last one, so it won't. I don't think it'll have as many. Uh, but I can hold that up like so. There, uh, that's basically parts six and seven. They're the chapter headings that are in that. And I, I can look at one of those chapter headings. And I can tell you what happens in that chapter. I want to see the whole thing. But what happens is you've also. I I have a big structure, but I'm also flexible. And I think so often what happens is something, one of the chapters you think is going to end up in or is going to be in part two might end up in part three or part four or it might get cut all together or it might end up in part one. But I'm basically I know, I can see the, I can see the world of the book. Usually it's the end that changes the most. So you can see everything that's going to happen. But it's the end where you think it's going to end there and it either ends before it, after it, or to the left or right of it. And that's the joy of it as well. But you don't have those surprises without doing the work of structuring it as well. I advise people to to structure things pretty strongly before you start, in a way, even if it's just shorthand.
2: Another question. Thank you. One in the middle.
3: Marcus, um, commonly overheard conversation is, uh, yeah, I've read the book, I've seen the movie, uh, the movie doesn't do the book justice. How, how do you feel about the film? Yeah, it's always... It's always the moment where you go, yeah, thanks for asking that one. Uh, it's, it's fine. Uh, the film's... I, sometimes I talk... I, and I just... I, I think it's really important to be honest. I think you can be honest and kind about something that you... The writer is always the worst person to ask about the book if you want to hear a happy answer because the, the author always complains. And uh, and I'll say, I basically handed it over to them. I took their money. Uh, so I don't really have the right to complain. That said, it's been a few years and I can still t- tell... I think the the film of The Book Thief and the book of The Book Thief basically were aiming for t- very different audiences. They really wanted children to watch that film, and it influenced too many of their decisions. I thought I was going to have no audience, so I wrote it exactly as I wanted it to be. I think the performances in the film are great. Um, you know, Emily Watson and Jeffrey Rush and and uh, Sophie, who played Lisa, was great. They were all, but it just there was just something that that wasn't exactly as I would have done it. But it certainly didn't hurt the book. It brought so many more people to the book. And I think there were moments in the film that I really loved. And there were some that I didn't love as much. And And I think that's, that's the truth of it. But I don't regret it. I don't, I don't regret that it happened. I love movies and I love books. So it's always worth having a, a, a crack at it, I think. And, uh, you know, so it's a little bit bittersweet, though. I haven't... I had to watch it six or seven times around when it came out and I thought, I'll give it five years. I'm always saying, give it five years and, uh, and then I'll, I'll watch it again. I might watch it. My kids haven't seen it and maybe I'll watch it with them one day. I haven't read the book either, but they're still a bit young. But I won't be forcing them to. I sort of feel like you've got to let them be who they... Uh, not, not say, right, now you're going to sit down and read my book. Why haven't you read it? So, um, no, the film's just a totally different adventure and what you have to do is let go.
2: Another question.
3: Great, there's one down the front here. Thank you. You can... All, I can also repeat it, yeah?
1: With the book thief, so why did you write it from this perspective?
3: Okay, why did I write the book Thief, from death 's perspective? It was just my general sunny disposition <laughs> i it It just made me have a lot of fun with the book, and it just seemed to work i honestly, it was an accident. All your best ideas rely on you stumbling across something and keeping it, it not your best ideas aren 't d- designed it 's almost like um there's a great, and I'm not I'm not the hugest U2 fan, but I, there's a great documentary about them making one, um, "Achtung Baby" in Berlin, that album, and uh, and there's a mo- there's the, the lead singer of that group, so Bono says, "We're very we have a very low opinion of the musician, but a, a high opinion of music, and where and it, it, music is what happens when everything clicks together, and it's the same with a book. It, it's not." That I I have really that I'm really smart. It's just that I haven't something happens and I go. That's I'm going to use that. And so in that case, I was writing with some kids at a school, and I got them to write about colours. And I in in the first sentence, and I wrote with them about colours. And I realised I'd written about three deaths. There's the sunny disposition, and uh, and then I'd written from death's point of view. And I thought, oh... I might just throw that into that book that I'm thinking of writing, setting Nazi Germany. And then I wrote, and then I had an idea about a girl stealing books and I went, Oh, I might just throw that into that book that's set in Nazi Germany. And then suddenly I thought, Oh, those two ideas are actually really important because it made sense that in a time of war, death is everywhere. So who better to tell the story? And, the problem was I couldn't get Death's voice right. He would say the most awful things and I'm not saying what some of those things were. Uh, but I would feel like I'd write a page and I, I almost felt like I had to go and have a shower or something because he, so, he was just enjoying his work a little bit too much. And the, so what happened was to get Death right, he, it was when he became a lot more sympathetic and I wanted him to write in a way that he was kind of scared of humans. And that's when it really started to work. So I hope that answers your question about why I chose death. Mostly it just made the book interesting to me and I liked being death. (laughs) The best is when some people come up to me and say, you've made me feel so much better about dying uh, from your use of death in The Book Thief. And I say... I'm really happy for you. (laughs) (laughs) Hasn't made me feel any better about dying.
2: Thank you so much, Marcus. Thank you, Storyfest. Thank you, you our audience. Thank you
3: so much.
2: Thank you for listening to this podcast from Storyfest
0: 2019. Come and find us on our website at storyfest.org.au or follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Storyfest Inc. And that's Inc with a C. We'd like to give a huge thank you to Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting for her recording and production expertise on this podcast.